The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The familiar sound of a raucous stadium that beams into many Disney subscribers' homes through its sports network, ESPN. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Late last week, pushy activist Dan Loeb revealed a change of heart on Disney. Having pushed for the $203 billion media giant to sell its sports network, ESPN, he now reckons it may not be the right time. My colleague Jen Saba in New York discusses some of the reasons why he may have been right all along. Meanwhile, Rio's copper saga is heating up. The $94 billion mining giant is trying to gain control of the Oyutolgoi copper mine in Mongolia by buying out the minority stake in Canada's Turquoise Hill Resources, which owns a majority stake in the copper project. But much like the complex ownership, columnists George Hay and Karen Kwok have some interesting views on the next chapter and how it will play out. I'm Lauren Silva Laughlin, the U.S. editor of Reuters Breaking Views, and I am here with Jennifer Seva. Hey, Jen. Hey. And we're talking Disney. How exciting. Disney and activist, one of our favorite activists, Dan Loeb. This is his, what, second time in Disney. And he took a stake and about a month ago had a laundry list of suggestions for the company, which included selling the sports network ESPN. And then over the weekend tweeted that he'd sort of backed away from that. Jen, kind of give us some of your high-level thoughts on, on ESPN. So how does it really fit within the streaming world that Disney has just gotten into? ESPN, it's, it's always been kind of highlighted as one of the crown jewels within the Disney empire. It was a sports network that kind of dominates uh, sports networks here in the United States. It was included in, in every single cable bundle more or less. So whether you wanted it or not, you got ESPN and they got a lot of money from the cable providers to carry this this channel. So that's sort of the backdrop. The issue now is that Disney is trying to transform itself into this streaming video service with Disney Plus. And ESPN is part of that. They have ESPN Plus. But there are some other reasons why ESPN is sort of you know, not quite the same fit as it as it has been in the past. But let me just ask you really quick. I mean, the, the, conceptually, the whole idea of live sports has changed and how we digest them because precisely because of streaming. Right. And people have these choices and they're making them a lot quicker and more definitively. And live sports is just be, it's sort of problematic within that whole offering that picture now. Yeah, and it's problematic for a couple of reasons. And I think probably the main reason is that Disney owns all of its intellectual property, more or less. And they have been certainly from their TV and film slates, right? Like they're generating all that they can and they're holding it and they're really distributing it on their streaming services. What makes sports different is that they do not own that. They, you know, so you have to go out every so often and bid on the rights to broadcast, say, a National Football League game or, you know, Major League Baseball or what, what have you, all the sports. And so those costs are going up quite a bit. So those costs are going up Disney doesn't control the content, which also means they can't just get the rights for, let's say, um, Sunday Night Football and then decide to stream it on ESPN+. Plus. 
what happens is the NFL is going to break up those rights into a billion different bidders. So somebody else may have the streaming rights. So that becomes a problem when those costs are going up and people are cutting the cord. So fewer and fewer people are taking cable packages. And we've seen some examples, too, even recently of, of somewhat disastrous sports like streaming exercises like when NBC tried to stream the olympics and yeah. nobody could really figure out how to get it and yeah um i don't think it did as well as NBC thought that it would and disney is not exactly you know it has got a different demographic right than that might be getting espn so this might fit better with someone else so you've said basically disney could just ditch espn even without damn Loeb pushing for that and what does that look like exactly? Yeah. So, I mean, so so the idea is sort of like, okay, let's strike while the iron's hot, right? Like you have this thing, that this network that still has value to it. And so ESPN, uh, in a couple of years, Morgan Stanley estimates it would get a, a little over $4 billion in EBITDA. Let's say you put that out on the open market. How would you comp that? You could say it's it's worth probably more than Fox because Fox has also a, a national uh, sports you know franchise. And ESPN is just stronger in terms of the ratings. And it's probably less than Netflix, right? So that puts you at about a 10 multiple. So it could be worth roughly 40 billion, let's say. So that's that's a quite a big chunk of change for Disney. And the reason why I argue that they should sell it is because they have a lot of debt that they actually took on when they bought Fox's entertainment and international assets. And they also have to invest in streaming. I mean, it's not cheap to produce this content and to get subscribers and to make money from it. I mean, Disney Plus is still not profitable. And where is Disney with its other businesses? Like, what would this cash be useful? Where is it? How are the theme parks doing? Like, how's the streaming business actually doing? Um, I read even that they were thinking about rolling out some sort of sports betting network if they kept ESPN, which seems like it would be style drift and sort of a, a disaster. But, um, you know, kind of where, where, where is the rest of Disney's business and where should its focus be? Yeah. So, I mean, really the, the way to think about it then is like they would have two major big chunks, right? Aside from the broadcast networks like ABC and some of the other cable channels, but the theme parks, right? Like they, once you invest in those properties, they throw off a lot of cash and you have people coming in the door. And they also, again, they own that IP. They could do a lot with that. They can, you know, turn rides from, you know, a Star Wars movie. And, and so there's a lot of synergies between that. And then, of course, we have the streaming products, which, you know, they have done just as well as uh, Netflix. They've, they've pretty much caught up with Netflix in terms of subscribers, like roughly 200 million globally. But it's still not profitable. And that's going to be a problem because, you know, people we're starting to see that there's a limit on, on how much and how many subscribers you can get. So that could be a problem. And so you're going to need some cash to to kind of shore that up. Well, great argument, Jen. Thank you so much for doing that and for your time. Yeah, thank you. Rio Tinto is battling for a copper mine in Mongolia, a rather complex situation with many attempts. And here to talk to me about it is George Hay and Karen Kwok in London. Very nice to speak to you both. Hi, Matt. So, George, tell us just to start off, what is the backstory here? Because it, it does seem like this is a very interesting story, although the deal size doesn't seem that big. Right. Well, I mean, if you just set aside half a day to kind of listen to all the ins and outs of this, but no, I'll try and be a bit quicker than that. Basically, Oyo Tolgoi 
is one of the big, biggest copper, or is going to be one of the biggest copper projects in the world. It's in Mongolia, and basically, it's this this saga has been going on for well over a decade, and it's going to be it, it is it is a real kind of core tier one, you know, top hole asset because uh, at its peak, it's going to be it should be something like five hundred thousand tons of copper a year in a market that is currently only about twenty million. So it's a, it's a kind of it's a it's a sizable chunk, and copper itself is absolutely vital to the energy transition because it's important in uh, electrification, copper wires, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it really is a kind of crown jewel. Or it's one of Rio's kind of really most important projects. So it's one that they really really want to get right. The problem for them is that its kind of corporate governance and shareholder structure. Well, it's, it's just kind of it's kind of all over the place because for various reasons in the past they've ended up with a structure which is basically an entity called Turquoise Hill Resources owns two thirds of it and Rio Tinto owns fifty one percent of Turquoise Turquoise Hill Resources then and so and then the other thirty four percent of the overall project is owned by the government of Mongolia and to to lend horrible excessive complexity on top of that rio and various other stakeholders in the past kind of lent money to mongolia to enable them to actually contribute to the project and then <laughs> and then rio's of late has had to kind of write off that debt and it's like any other big mining project it's insanely insanely complex and the negotiations and relations with the home country in this case mongolia are always kind of back and forth like a soap opera. But basically, where they've arrived at now is that Rio, rather than owning 51% of Turquoise Hill resources, they've decided they want to buy out the other 49%. So at the the end game for them, the reason why they want to do that is to simplify this thing. So they only have two stakeholders, basically, well, them and the Mongolian government. That's the end game they're trying to achieve. But getting there is quite difficult. And so, Karen, tell us about this. We've got some kind of noisy minority shareholders. What are they saying about this situation? So basically, it started off like early this year when Rio put up an offer, but the shareholders, a lot of them are based in Canada, are saying that the valuation that they put up to is too low. So after that, Rio tried again and again, and the third time, which it put up this month, finally they got they got the board of the Canadian company Turquoise Hill to agree that there's this devaluation that should be worth it is the fair value that of the company but then still the minority shareholder already 14 percent of them including one of the biggest ones called Pentwater, still again saying that the value is too low yeah and they need to get they need to get like 50 percent of those so as you say they've kind of agreed they've they finally got an agreement between rio and turquoise hill resources that this this valuation which is 43 canadian dollars a share is okay but they still uh, the, the big hurdle they need to get over is that they need to get 50 percent of the minorities to say yes and at the moment as karen says they've only got 14 uh, sorry they've got 14 percent have already said no because they don't think it's enough and it's it's interesting you're in your piece karen you've, you've got some very nice kind of crunchy numbers kind of showing i guess how you can get to that 43 dollars a share number but I suppose this isn't without risk, right? So the the mine itself has not opened yet, and 
you also geographically there could be I guess a, a few problems too could you talk us through that Karen? Yeah, so first of all, for geographically, this mine, this Mongolian mine, is situated in between Russia and China. And so there's quite a lot of risk that if something happened politically, that might affect the production, uh, the export-import level. And second of all, the, the mine, because as you said, it's not opened yet, and it still requires a lot of capital expenditure, more money to pull in in order to keep it operating. And so far, there's quite a lot of debt ramping up with this mine already and that the interest payments really high and they uh, as you all know like interest rates going up at the moment and there's a lot of money they re- need to repay before they actually make some cash out to their investor yeah and then i suppose i suppose the other thing is really that there you know you might think it's why 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 do some people i.e. rio think it's worth 43 and others the minorities think it's over 50 that's quite a big you know, possibly even near 60, like it's quite a big spread. And part of the part of the thing which kind of reflects what, uh, well, there's, there's two, I mean, you know, fairly obviously that the, the things that the two drivers of revenues are price and volume. You can take different views on both of those things, because as I said at the start, peak production of this mine could be 500,000 tonnes of copper a year at some point. But exactly when that point is, we don't, we're not totally sure. And you can quite easily take the view that it will be quite a lot less than that for some time before they get to peak production, or it may, may not even get to that peak production. It's all it's all kind of slightly up in the air. And then even more up in the air is the, is what the copper price is doing, because the basically the, <laughs> the copper price has been in earlier this year, because of all the kind of ructions from Ukraine and various supply chain crunches after the pandemic, the price of copper got up to something like $10,000 a, a tonne. But now it's popped back down to around 7000 And the thing is, you know, you, can, you, could, you could either say broadly, if you're Rio, you might say, well, OK, we might be about to have a recession. We probably are going to have to re- a recession. That will affect the price and the price will come down. So we don't want to overpay. Equally, if you're the minorities, you might say, well, this this metal is so absolutely integral for the energy transition. And what we do know, and what is definitely the case, is that there's almost certainly not enough of it being mined for the demand that's coming down the, the track towards the end of the uh, the decade and, and beyond. And therefore, you, can, you could justifiably say if you're them, well, you know, it's going to be you know, it's going to be 10,000, it's going to be, you know, much higher than it currently is, because there just won't be enough of it. And the interesting thing is, either both of those views are, have some validity to them. And that is obviously very interesting, because with the situation then is, I guess, if you're real, you've shown your interest in this, in this, in this asset, you want this, it's very clear that you do, but just exactly at what price you're willing to pay for it. But if they, if they don't go the whole way, they end up with this sort of, I guess, a bit of a messy structure then, right? Which is what you, you currently have, right? So but that's what you were kind of starting to talk right. about at the, at the very it, it, beginning. Exactly. I suppose the, <laughs> the problem is Rio is a bit like a someone, uh, someone who really wants to buy a house and they just, they've already kind of put in an offer and they've kind of come back with another offer and they've come back with another offer. If you're on the other side of that transaction, which the minorities are, you could because you you you've seen that this this uh, your counterparty is steadily raising its offer you can to a certain extent you, you know you know for sure that they really really want 
they really really want the house <laughs> and so like it's you know even if we were even if this even if there wasn't such a kind of nuanced picture on the actual what this thing is actually worth you can see their point of view or you know they really want it let's just kind of let's just you know hold out for as much as, as long as we can and so that's the that's the kind of dynamic here and it's not totally clear at this stage what's going to happen but what we do know is that rio because of the high price of metals over the last couple of years they are kind of rolling around in cash they 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 do have quite a strong balance sheet so you know not only is it like it, it, not only is it kind of a situation where you know pentwater and the rest can see that rio really wants it they also know that rio has uh, quite a lot of cash and so you could probably pay them more but to your to your home buyer analogy, they certainly look like a, a vulnerable buyer, I would say. Or yeah, vulnerable stroke, desperate stroke. Kind of <laughs> insert um, adjective here. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, Karen, George, I would imagine we're probably going to hear more from this. And I look forward to talking to you about it in the future and, and obviously reading your views. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Cast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. <laughs>